Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you, live from Portland. On the line with us is the D.C. correspondent for The Nation, Ken Klippenstein, and thenation.com, of course, the website, is a Twitter handle, at Ken, K-L-I-P-P-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. Ken, am I pronouncing your name right? You sure are. Okay, great. You wrote a, a brilliant piece for The Nation titled, An Internal Pandemic Document Shows the Coronavirus Gives Trump Extraordinary Powers. Explain. So what many people might not realize about pandemics is that under the conditions of one, the executive branch and um, the president actually gains, as I mentioned in the article, extraordinary powers to respond to that crisis. And while I'm not, you know, opposed in principle to... Which is arguably a good thing. You know, having... Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think most experts will tell you that emergency powers are, you know, necessary to meet emergencies with. But the question becomes how those powers are applied and sort of how they are pursued. And when you look at the agencies that get a lot of the powers, one of them, Customs and Border Protection, which includes most recognizable among its components, the Border Patrol, they are among the agencies that will receive the most power. And when you look at, you know, the current president and how hardline his immigration policies have been, you can see one can imagine these powers being used to pursue, you know, the administration's political goals as opposed to, you know, just meeting the crisis of the epidemic. And that really, I think, was the crux of the concern for for me and in the story. Right. It was maybe two months ago. I did a whole riff about it here on this program. I don't believe we had the author of the article on. Probably should have. But there was a fascinating article in one of the, you know, more larger and credible publications, uh, you know, something like The Atlantic or The New Yorker or, or, or possibly The Nation. I'm, I, you know, frankly, I don't remember. I'm sorry. That pointed out that the Customs and Border Patrol isn't part of or is only peripherally part of the normal chain of command within the executive branch and has been in some ways modified and in some ways just outside of the normal procedures, adapted itself to become basically Trump's private little uh, police force, his version of, I realize the weakness of Nazi analogies, but we saw Hitler do this with the SS. You know, he had his own, basically a military or a, uh, a quasi-military full police power agency that answered directly to the executive. 
to what extent, if that is the case, or if that becomes the case, and Customs and Border Patrol, or specifically ICE, I believe this article was about how ICE is becoming basically Trump's shock troops, and has the potential to, and he's throwing funding at them like there's no tomorrow, has the potential to become his own private military that could even behave beyond their own statutory mandate. To what extent is that a concern, or is that something you didn't encounter in writing this? No, I think that's an enormous concern. A few months ago, I had leaked to me from an individual at the Pentagon documents detailing Border Patrol's coordination with the military because, recall, uh, Trump declared a national emergency over the undocumented immigration that, that exists at the southern border. And so now, not only is Border Patrol operating with, you know, far more resources than they've ever had before and, you know, essentially a lot more freedom to sort of pursue a more aggressive response to immigration than under any preceding administration. They're also working with the military on U.S. soil, which, of course, there are certain legal limitations on what the military is allowed to do. Yeah, doesn't Posse Comitatus prevent that? Or does that simply prevent them from arresting Americans? It's very complicated. National security law is very complicated. But when you declare a national emergency, as Trump had over undocumented immigration at the southern border, that loosens things up. So if you look at the uh, documents that were um, provided to me, what they show is that the military is allowed to play a support role with Border Patrol. So there are certain things they're allowed to do and there are certain things they're not. I think it's a bit of misleading language to say, oh, they're purely support when you have essentially, you know, Marines and National Guard and things like that, you know, operating with guns and just saying, oh, but they won't, you know, they're not going to actually do anything directly. I think you're going to see a sort of mission creep in the same way that you do with any sort of deployment where the armed forces gain more power and, and that's at the expense of the power of the domestic law enforcement agencies, which are supposed to handle these things. But sort of my point in describing all that is that we're really seeing the immigration authorities become supercharged in terms of the powers that they're getting in much the fashion that you were just describing as Trump having pursued. We're talking with Ken Klippenstein. He is the D.C. correspondent for The Nation. TheNation.com is the website. His uh, Twitter handle is at Ken Klippenstein. Ken, are there indications, specific indications, I mean, that what we're talking about here has moved beyond the abstract into the real, that, that uh, Customs and Border Patrol or ICE or both are beginning to behave in ways that would indicate that they are not responsive to control by the Department of Homeland Security or the Justice Department or whatever agency might theoretically be in charge of them, but instead are beginning to simply do what Trump wants. I I know that we've seen situations where Trump goes down to the border and meets these guys or meets ICE guys, and they're all wearing MAGA hats and stuff like that, which is generally prohibited, you know, for federal employees under the normal rules. Certainly, they felt free to ignore those kinds of things. But do we have empirical evidence that it's gone beyond that? I would say that the evidence that I have is based on, you know, my extensive source base within Department of Homeland Security and um, what they've described to me as a lot of frustration over the inability on their part to do their jobs when all of the money is going to this particular sub-agency, Customs and Border Protection. In addition to that, there appears to be a lot of dissension within the ranks, even among people that, you know, one would not consider liberal or progressive by any means. I'm just thinking that CBP is sort of getting out of control with respect to the authorities and resources that they now enjoy. But the article, I think, was largely cautionary, or at least that was my intention of doing it, because we don't know yet how they were going to be deployed in response. I mean, what I got was a pandemic response plan, which describes what they could do pursuant to 
the emergency authorities established and sort of consolidated under the Bush administration. A lot of people don't know this history. I certainly didn't either. This um, was but in after 2007, President, wasn't it? Yep, that's right. Under the Bush administration, after 9-11, he issued a number of executive orders that, according to his sort of public statements at least, were aimed at shoring up national security. And one of these things was, again, giving the executive all kinds of special privileges to be able to respond to an epidemic incident. And it's very much reflected the sort of, you know, drift away from kind of civil liberties principles that had been sort of held as sacrosanct for a long time and towards consolidating more power in the federal government generally. And again, I want to stress, you know, I want to be fair, I don't think that's necessarily the worst thing. I mean, uh, there is such a thing as a national emergency. And, and in some cases, I think right. it makes sense to, you know, respond to that. And I feel pressure. a lot more comfortable again, though, if uh, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden were president than Donald Trump. Exactly. We have a president here who's not just his own personal political orientation, but that of his base, which he critically depends on for re-election. And we're in, a, of course, a re-election year. To me, that uh, is a recipe for trouble and potentially deployment of um, border authorities in a way that's perhaps not putting national security first and, and maybe putting politics in his re-election first. Yeah, more than half of Republicans polled have said that if Trump were to bring out the army to restore order in America, they'd be fine with that. And that was months ago. Right. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Right. Ken Klippenstein, his piece is in The Nation. is titled, An Internal Pandemic Document Shows the Coronavirus Gives Trump Extraordinary Powers. Ken, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up on the science revolution, what's the truth on coronavirus testing? And why has Trump refused to accept the World Health Organization test that the entire rest of the planet is using? Melinda St. Louis is here on how the insurer's conduct is outrageous on the coronavirus pandemic. Robert Weissman joins in on how public citizen and 70 organizations are calling on Trump to prevent big pharma from profiteering on coronavirus. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear is also here about the ongoing Fukushima disaster. And in Geeky Science, find out what happens if you walk just 30 minutes a day. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever you find great podcasts. And welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us for the hour, taking your calls. Congressman Pocan represents the 2nd District of the state of Wisconsin. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives, actually in all of Congress, the House and the Senate. His website is pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman, welcome back. Well, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here during these uh, trying times for everyone. Yeah, it's a real challenge. And by the way, because I'm doing the show from home, just like when I'm on the road, you and I have done this before uh, using the same equipment, there's about a one second delay between us. So, you know, from time to time, if we're speaking to each other, which we won't be doing much, you know, because as soon as we get some calls on the board, we may step on each other and it's just all fine. I'm curious uh, your thoughts on what's going on in Congress right now, how the administration and how Congress is are dealing with this uh, crisis. I think we can legitimately call it that. And Anything else that's on your mind? We haven't had an opportunity to speak before you went on the air because I'm at home. Sure. Oh, I think, you know, honestly, we are dealing uh, coronavirus uh, most of the day, every day. 
right now and in um, you know difficult situations. A lot of our staff are all working from home, like you're doing. Um, you know, obviously people are encouraged where they can to try to do that, but obviously that can't happen everywhere. So people need to be smart uh, about you know uh, all sorts of precautions that we should be doing. But right now in Congress, the Senate is looking at the third package, which is going to be a big package. And right now, a Progressive Caucus, for example, is a call today with our members. We've got some recommendations we're, we've, we're putting forward to our leadership, and we have been putting forward to our leadership, covering a bunch of different areas, but trying to make sure that we're addressing uh, every bit that we can um, that needs to be covered. Uh, we like the idea of the direct checks going out. We think that's going to be helpful, although I think the amount might be somewhat in question. Uh, we understand the concern for small businesses that they may not be around in six weeks. If they don't have some assistance as well, we need to make sure that people, no matter who you are, can get access to a test. Uh, we need to make sure that um, more people are protected. Families first really is the, the mantra that we have going into this. And uh, there's just a lot happening and new information every single day. And uh, we're asking everyone to stockpile on compassion and patience rather than toilet paper. I think that's the best advice in some ways because uncertainty can be as problematic as the virus in some ways, and we can't let that happen. Yeah, well said. Okay, you want to pick up phone calls? Absolutely. Okay, Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Greetings, uh, Tom and uh, Congressman Pocan. You know, I'm Steve from uh, the native of Madison and longtime Phoenix resident here now. We spoke before. I appreciate it. My wife, she is going to be having her office closing uh, the end of April. She's been in Tom's line of work for about 30 years plus in advertising um, and such, uh, newspapers and all. Um, this is closing end of April. What are, it's moving to Houston. They're moving their office. So what, what can we do for doing extended um, unemployment benefits, uh, Congressman? Thank you, sir. Yeah, one of the many issues I think that's on the table right now that we're talking about. Also, I am very intrigued, depending where this goes, Tom, I don't know, you. I know you would know because you'd know everything, <laughs> but when it comes to things we did during the Great Depression around um, work hours, the Kellogg Company, for example, I know there's a book written on how they reduced hours across the board for everyone rather than laying off some people and how that really helped keep the economy going. We're looking at ideas like that. We're looking at how maybe you could augment some unemployment comp with that. We're looking at these direct checks going out. We're trying to make sure that people can be protected. You know, sick pay is important, but this is going to be going beyond sick pay, I think, very, very quickly. And therefore, we have to be ready for every possible scenario. So we hope that as the Senate is taking a lead on this package, although obviously our leadership is very, very involved and our committee chairs on this, we as members are trying to help get a bunch of things covered, including that extended unemployment. And like I said, we're going to have a document coming from the Progressive Caucus. Yeah. On the Depression, of course, FDR said the best welfare program is a job, and then he created the WPA right. and the CCC and all these other programs. That's not quite going to work right now because people can't go to work. But if we look at what other countries are doing, virtually every Western European country mandates at least 50 weeks of paid sick time, cumulatively, or long-term unemployment, one or the other. And you know, we had several years of long-term unemployment before the Bush administration took a hatchet to it. And so those seem like just fairly simple fixes right away to get money into people's hands. The yeah, problem I think one of the concerns... Oh, I'm sorry. The problem with both of those ahead, is sorry, they don't that. address the, the concerns of people in the gig economy, people who are, quote, contractors, people who are Uber drivers, or, or people who are part-time workers who, you know, maybe a lot of companies keep people under 30 hours so they don't get benefits. 
And you know, it's, it's like, this is a huge problem. I, I wrote an op-ed saying that this is a Great Depression, World War II style problem. And it may even be worse than the Great Depression. And we need to prepare for the worst and work for the best. But preparing for the worst means not a $1 trillion stimulus, but maybe over the next 18 months, a 15 to $20 trillion stimulus, because that's what it took to get us out of the Great Depression. Back to you. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that still didn't get included in, in what you, one of the things that we're hearing about, especially at restaurants, for the most part now in places like Wisconsin, I know in California, other places, you can only do carryout, and I think that's going to soon probably be nationwide. Restaurants, as you know, run on um, high volume, low margins. I think they did a survey here, and I'm going to probably say the numbers wrong, but it was somewhere in the, the, the reserves that most restaurants have is about 11 days worth. They still have expenses. Every business still has expenses, even if employees are on sick pay. And I think that's one of the concerns, just saying we can make loans available. Um, you know, I know as a small business owner, I've got certain fixed costs no matter what that are going to happen, uh, and that's going to run out very quick if we don't address those jobs won't be available in two months unless we also address that aspect. So much as the gig economy, it's the small business owners, the restaurateurs, and so many others. It's the mom and pop shops who, you know, often those people running the shop that are working at may not be eligible and some of the benefits we have to make sure they are. We are going to have to get creative, I think, on a few fronts. Yeah. Here in Oregon, Kate Brown, our governor, just suspended all evictions for six months. Other communities around the country are suspending police participating in evictions. I don't know why they ever did in the first place. And I believe France and Spain have both suspended the need for all debt payments for three to six months now so far, and the government will backstop the banks in that regard. But I don't know the details of that. I'm trying to find it out. So. Yeah, I just got information the president is invoking the Defense Production Act. I had signed a letter Andy Levin had led to try to get increased production on some of the various supplies we need with testing and other things. And so that's something I think that's a good sign, too, that's coming out today. Is that the law that Franklin Roosevelt got passed to convert the auto factories into making bombers? This is to allow, yeah, the Department of Defense to be able to do some of the production right now that we need because it's not just reagents, it's all sorts of stuff around testing that we're running into potential short supply on. So I think this will help fill that gap. Yeah, I heard New York State was running out of swabs, just the thing they stick stick up your nose. Across the country, it's not just New York State. That's the issue. Yeah. Wow. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us taking your calls on the Tom Harbin program, our national town hall meeting during this time of crisis. This is the Tom Hartman program. Let's not forget that crises are great opportunities, too. Moments of crisis are moments of opportunity for us to reevaluate all of our systems right across the board. We'll be back. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club, and today we're reading from ADD Success Stories, a guide for fulfillment to fulfillment for families with attention deficit disorder. And it's really individuals as well. And mostly the book is well over 100 individual stories about ways that people have learned how to be successful in life and uh, just sharing them with others. A lot of these came from when I ran the ADD forum on CompuServe. And a lot of these are you know, other people's stories from CompuServe, some of them from when Louise was coaching, when we were running the community for ADHD kids, all kinds of stuff. So. This is from chapter 5, page 47, titled, Learning How to Handle Criticism and Self-Criticism. And it opens with a quote from Benjamin Disraeli in 1860. He said, it's much easier to be critical than to be correct. One of the most common and recurring strategies that successful hunters, that's people with ADD, tell about is how they've learned to handle criticism. 
A successful ADD entrepreneur tells the story of how devastated he was at a high school presentation that he'd spent the better part of two months on for English class. He read dozens of books, dug out arcane facts, sifted through quotes and stories and information, all to find what he thought was the absolutely perfect summary to make his point. With great enthusiasm, he pulled an all-nighter, writing the final paper, and marched off to school the next day with his head high and the smell of academic victory in his nostrils. At 2 o'clock, he walked into his English classroom and marched up to the teacher's desk, a paper in his hand. Here it is, he said, and handed it to her with a dramatic flourish. She took one glance at it, leaned over the side of the desk, and dropped it into the wastebasket. You didn't double spaces, she said. When are you going to learn to read the directions? Stunned, he began to protest to tell her about the hours of work he'd done. She shook her head as if shaking his words out of her ears and interrupted him, saying, You have to learn how to do things right. This will be a good lesson for you. I'm giving you an F for that paper, and there's no appeal because today was the last day you could hand it in. He went home that night and at the ripe old age of 14 cried himself to sleep. I learned two important lessons from that experience, he told me 20 years later. The first was that I needed to slow down to force myself to read directions. In that regard, it was probably a positive experience. But it also almost destroyed my commitment to her, to the class, to the school, and to any future academic achievement. And that was where I learned my second and most important lesson. When you fall down, stand back up, dust yourself off, and carry on. That sounds easy, I said, but how do you do it? How do you go from being angry about her, from blaming her, or for that matter, from blaming yourself? I have a picture in my mind, he said, of a man who's walking down a dusty rural road. He trips on a stone and falls face first into the dirt. Then he reaches over to the side of the road, grabs a stick, and begins to beat himself over the head with a stick, yelling at himself about how stupid he was to trip and fall. Between these comments, he's cursing the stone for being there and blaming it for tripping him. That's absurd, isn't it? But that's just what many people do. And when I imagine that picture and I see how absurd it is to wallow in self-blame, I feel empowered to get on with my life. End of quote. Unfortunately, the absurd behavior that this entrepreneur described is just what so many people do, particularly those who've spent their lives feeling like they've never quite lived up to their potential. They respond to criticism first by blaming the critic and then by beating themselves up. They rationalize the former by taking a debating position, finding flaws in the criticism or the critic, and then rationalize the latter by telling themselves that if they beat themselves up emotionally, they'll learn from the experience. In real life, it rarely works that way. People who pursue this strategy instead just end up bruised and ineffectual, paralyzed by fear of criticism or by the damage they do to themselves in the name of lesson learning. So how can we best handle criticism? And then we go through some more stories. The first step is to examine the criticism to see if there's any truth in it. Usually there is some truth to criticism, and if we can separate out the kernel of truth from the emotional baggage associated with it, we could often learn something useful. For example, when my first book on ADD was published, one reviewer wrote a scathing and sarcastic commentary on it. While much of the commentary was off-base or factually inaccurate, he did point out one real deficiency. My premise of Hunters and Farmers was based on anthropology, but I hadn't gotten the endorsement of any anthropologists or cited any anthropological texts in my bibliography. So, deciding that he had a point, I sought out people with the requisite knowledge of hunting and farming culture. I first found Will Crinan, MD, who, while not an anthropologist, was one of the few medical doctors in the world to have spent years of his career as the physician to an indigenous hunting society, one of the last of the Native American tribes in Canada. Each year, every year, he followed them with his small plane as they made their annual 1,000-mile trek with the caribou they hunted. 
He told me that when he first arrived, he found that the previous doctor had diagnosed 100% of their children with ADD and put the entire school on Ritalin. That, for me, was a pretty good validation of the hunter-farmer theory. Then I met cultural anthropologist Jay Fikes, Ph.D., who wrote the famous books debunking Carlos Castaneda. Dr. Fikes obtains his Ph.D. by studying the few remaining Native American hunting societies of the American Southwest and Northern Mexico. After reading my book, he wrote a ringing endorsement of it, saying that his experience taught him that hunting and agricultural societies were profoundly different and that the individuals who make them up are profoundly different. There's a startlingly high percentage of what we would call ADD among some of the members of Native hunting tribes. So that criticism of my book, as sarcastic and stinging as it was, made the book better. Anyhow, the book is ADD Success Stories, A Guide to Fulfillment for Families with Attention Deficit Disorder. Let's uh, get to some phone callers here. Liz in Los Angeles. Liz, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning to both of you. I have a question about how to make the rich contribute to this. And I have a suggestion. A company like Amazon, I see their trucks all over L.A. They're not paying any taxes to use the roads. Why don't we charge them like a million dollars for each truck they have on the road? And I'm sure there are other solutions for other companies that can do something like that. Yeah, Liz, I think right now what we're focused on is getting financial support out to folks who need financial support, and then how we raise the revenue, I think, will be a part of this. But I don't think that's the the next 48 or 72 hours conversation we're dealing with, getting right now the support that we need to. And while there could be many ideas, as you're right, many of these big companies that are being exempted from some of the sick leave and other things, we want them, first of all, to be included. They pay very little taxes. All the small businesses pay taxes, and there probably isn't anything right now being looked at other than loans to help there. And in that, I think, is still a bit problematic. So there's a lot we're trying to figure on right now. The immediate crisis will be around dealing with getting financial support to individuals and others that we need to do. How we fund that, I think, will be some of the next steps. Also, Tom, it's just said, the uh, president said we'll suspend all foreclosures and evictions through April. So uh, mm. at least there's a short-term statement that seems to be moving forward. That's great. Step by step. Susie in Redondo Beach, another KPFK listener. You're on the air with Congressman Pocamp. Hi. I wanted to suggest I like families first, but an even probably more apt one would be the vulnerable first, because there's certainly a lot of wealthy families that will be fine in this crisis. But the vulnerable, whether they're the homeless, and I don't hear the homeless population talked about at all in most of these discussions about this crisis and which also brings me to are the democrats going to push through medicare for all that's not linked to an election it was always supposed to be for everyone sure. Susie, let's let the congressman um, answer we're down to 40 seconds here the question really is around Medicare for All. I doubt that's going to happen with this president right now as they're addressing this crisis. But hopefully we're realizing things like making sure everyone can get tested is in the best interest of the public. So the more we do these types of things, we are making the absolute strongest case for Medicare for All you could possibly make. And hopefully that will help us to be able to do that much sooner than it otherwise might have taken. And how do we support the homeless? 
Um, there are measures as, as well that are being looked at with all this. We don't have all the final details at all of this next package, but this is the big package. This is at least a trillion dollars. Uh, it won't be the last package, in my opinion. I'm quite sure there's going to be more. But right now, it's been taking a little while to figure out all the assessment holes, and that's what's happening. The good news is, even from what we've seen just from the president's press conference, things that we all recommended weeks ago are being now considered. Yeah. Carl in Fairland, Texas. You're on the air with Congressman Bokan. Thank you, uh, Congressman. Would it be possible that the President of the United States could commandeer all these cruise ships and move them into port harbors where they could be effectively turned into hospital ships in weeks with good composite crews of electricians, carpenters, and HVAC people? Thank you. Yeah, Carl, I'm guessing just from everything I've heard about the ventilation systems and those cruise ships that it would be very hard to make them retrofit to something like hospitals. I think you'd almost be better uh, doing something almost ground up or in some of the military-style uh, you know, hospital facilities that we can put up temporarily. I'm not sure if cruise ships, because of the very problem that they we can already see have, have been created because of the ventilation, I don't know how you would change that substantively enough, quickly enough to make them hospital beds, but just a, a, a guess. Glenn in Falls City, Washington. You're on the air of Congressman Pocan. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Um, I, as dire as this is and sad as it is, I'm just looking for a message of hope from Congress, something like uh, putting us all together in a, a great war style. Uh, we all got to put it together, whether we're doing victory gardens or uh, on the front lines. This could be a Cold War or it could be a, a Holocaust, depending on how we all work on it together. Yeah, Glenn, um, great point. You know, I did a Facebook Live last night, and this is one of the things that I wanted to leave people with is, you know, I've been very heartened, uh, you know, after being in Congress for seven and now almost, I guess, uh, a quarter years. Uh, I have watched Republicans and Democrats ask the same questions around supply chains and testing and all the rest. Uh, we really are working together. Yesterday I was on the phone uh, and texting with a Republican colleague of mine in the state. We're all working on joint efforts together. I, I think, if anything, this really has brought people very very, very much together with maybe a couple blips from Kevin McCarthy early on. Uh, right now, it seems uh, to be happening. Uh, occasionally, we're getting someone saying uh, things that aren't so wise, but you know, I think it's better to focus on what we're moving forward with rather than uh, some of the mistakes people are saying, because it, it doesn't help to do that. And the good news is people are really rowing together on this. Um, and uh, we will come out of this. I mean, we uh, have the capacity to, and right now people are working together. And uh, like I said, this is a great time to stock up on compassion and patience uh, rather than toilet paper. Uh, we need to really, uh, you know, drop a lot of maybe the walls that, that have occurred previously, whether they're politically or ideologically, and move forward. And I do think that's happening, and uh, I think that's what's going to help us get through this. Christy in Minneapolis, listening on KTNF. You're on the air with Congress in Pocan. Hi, Congress, Congressman Polkan. Thank you for taking my call. I'm a nurse at uh, a local hospital, uh, the VA hospital, actually. And a couple of weeks ago, all the N95 masks were wiped out of our supply closets. Um, and we don't know who took them. But we, I approached my supervisor yesterday and asked, when are we going to get some? He did not know. Um, and then he said we need to be properly fitted in order to wear one anyways. And so that is really concerning to me because it, if we don't have protective devices, 
when we're working with our veterans, how are we protecting them and each other? And when are we going to get these supplies? Yeah, uh, you know, in fact, I was trying to find a, a text I had from Mark Ticano, um, who's been very much on top of this as chair of the Veterans Affairs Committee. He's been looking at the VA. Uh, VA is experiencing what everyone else is experiencing, and we, we don't want to have that. That's why I think the defense production um, uh, that we've requested and now the president seems to be moving forward with is going to be vital to get more of these items uh, out to the, the medical facilities. We have to have them going out to. Um, you know, we've heard about supply shortages in various areas. The good Good news is people are keeping on top of it. You know, for a while uh, last week, the reason we were banging the drum so loud on lab capacity was that was the important issue. We had uh, last Monday an only enough capacity to do about 15, 16,000 tests uh, nationwide in a day. Now that's more than doubled, and it's, it's now in an area we're not as worried about. Now we're worried about things like reagents and other supplies. So that's why defense production will help take care of that. We're all moving to the right place, um, but there's no question. Um, you know, had some of this happened a little sooner we'd be a little better off but right now we're pulling in the same direction to make sure we're getting these goods out as quickly as possible and getting the people tested that need to be and um, you know another thing I think it's important you're going to continue to see rises in numbers even after we've turned the corner because we're first now finally testing people and we know more people have the coronavirus so don't be spooked I, I think there could be at least a seven day if not longer lag from when we actually see something good happen from when it's actually happened so I think people just really um, having that compassion and patience right now is going to be important for all of us. And thank you so much for working. You know, right now it's a tough job in any medical facility, and I just want to say thank you and to everyone who works in those areas. Nancy in Irvine, California, we have just a minute to the break. Nancy, quick question for the congressman, please. Um, yes, Trump mentioned toward the end of his press conference yesterday that he was going to be bailing out Boeing, and I wondered how much of the package this meant for the people is actually going to Boeing. No one seems to have picked up on this. Yeah, there's nothing on paper yet, so I don't have an answer for you on that. So so is that the administration has a bailout package that's different from the one that you guys put together in the no, House? No, it's going to be the there? next package, and they've recommended something for airlines. Uh, we're saying all sorts of things, like if you're going to do some you know, assistance for some big business you know, who often don't pay taxes and small business do, let's make sure it's helping across the board. Let's make sure it's not used for stock buybacks. I mean, we're trying to put some criteria. I don't know where we'll get in those negotiations, but we're, you know, we know that this is part of, I think, what the next package is on the table is really focused on that economic side of this, but we don't have the details right now because there's nothing on paper. Yeah. And uh, hopefully they'll be getting it to you soon. Do you have any indication of how this is moving? It's going to start in the Senate. So the last two bills started in the House. Um, we're, we have a conference call tomorrow with all Democrats again, so I assume we might have something by then. Okay, great. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us for the hour on the Tom Harmon program. He represents the Second uh, District of Wisconsin. He's the co-chair of the House, uh, or excuse me, of the con con Congressional Progressive Caucus. And uh, we'll be back taking your calls in just a moment. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Jeffrey Sachs' new book, Building the New American Economy, Smart, Fair, and Sustainable. This is the preface. The foreword of the book, by the way, was written by Bernie Sanders. This is from the preface, though, by Jeffrey Sachs. Donald Trump becomes president of a nation that is deeply divided by class, race, health, and opportunity. In his acceptance speech, Trump pledged to be the president for all Americans. He also gave a very promising hint of how to pursue that objective in practice. Trump is a real estate developer, so it's not surprising that his brief acceptance speech was dominated by the idea of rebuilding, a word he mentioned four times. And then here's the quote. Working together, we will begin the urgent task of rebuilding our nation and renewing the American dream. We are going to fix our inner cities and rebuild our highways, bridges, tunnels, airports, schools, and hospitals. We're going to rebuild our infrastructure, which will become, by the way, second to none. And we will put millions of our people to work as we rebuild it. End of quote from Trump. This is a valid, indeed uplifting perspective. America desperately needs rebuilding. Its infrastructure is decrepit. Its energy system is out of date for a climate-threatened economy. Its coastal areas are already showing grave vulnerability to rising sea levels and extreme storms. Its rust belt cities like Grand Rapids, Michigan, are boarded up. Its inner cities across the country are unhealthy for the people being raised in them. Rebuilding America's cities and creating a 21st century infrastructure could be Trump's greatest legacy. Trump's pledge to make America's infrastructure second to none is a correct and bold goal for America's competitiveness, future job creation, public health, and well-being. Yet, as I will explain in this book, America today is certainly no longer second to none. On a recent Sustainable Development Goals Index, the United States ranked 22nd out of 34 high-income countries. For Americans returning from foreign travel, the well-known sign that they've touched down at home is that the elevators, escalators, and moving walkways of our once-proud airports are out of order. A builder president could indeed help to restore vitality to the U.S. economy and put millions of people to work in the process. All of the major candidates in the 2016 presidential campaign pledged a major effort to rebuild America's infrastructure. Indeed, Trump suggested a hefty price tag of $1 trillion, which is a realistic sum and target for the coming five years, roughly 1% of national income every year. The keys to success in building a new American economy can be summarized in three words, smart, fair, and sustainable. 
A smart economy means deploying the best of cutting-edge technology. Our energy grid should be smart in economizing on energy use and incorporating distributed energy sources, such as wind and solar power, into the grid. Our transport system should be smart in enabling self-driving electric vehicles within our cities and 21st century high-speed rail between them. A fair economy would start with Trump's pledge to rebuild the inner cities. Such a pledge should include affordable housing, decent urban public schools and public health facilities, efficient transport services for low-income communities, parks and green spaces in places now burdened by urban blight, the cleanup of urban toxic dumps, comprehensive recycling rather than landfill, and safe water for all Americans so that the water-drinking disaster that afflicts Flint, Michigan, and similar crises elsewhere are brought to a rapid end and never recur. A sustainable economy means acknowledging and anticipating the dire environmental threats facing America's cities and infrastructure. The vulnerability of New Orleans levees had been predicted by scientists and engineers long before Hurricane Katrina. The flooding of New York City had been predicted long before Hurricane Sandy. The risks ahead to the United States in the event of unchecked climate change can be found in countless scientific and policy studies, such as risky business and the National Climate Assessment. Much could go wrong in an undirected building boom that is not smart, fair, and sustainable. Trump's campaign pledges to restore the Keystone XL pipeline and U.S. coal production are cases in point. Investing in a boom in fossil fuels would be an expensive dead end. Such projects will inevitably be closed soon after they are completed, if not in a Trump administration, then in the ones that follow. They are simply untenable environmentally, no matter what the lobbyists assert. Billions of dollars would be thrown down the drain to develop resources that will never be used. It's funny that climate deniers are chortling about the incoming Trump administration. Nature doesn't care what they think, and neither do the 192 other countries on the planet that signed the recent Paris Climate Agreement. Fossil fuel companies can spend money developing unusable sources, resources, but they would be throwing money down the mine shaft, as would the investors buying the, the bonds financing such hapless projects. Trump made another very important pledge in his acceptance speech that should underpin a successful strategy for building a new American economy. He said, I will harness the creative talents of our people and we will call upon our best and brightest to leverage their tremendous talent for the benefit of all. America has nearly 5,000 colleges and universities across the country, including every congressional district. And with the finest collection of engineering and scientific faculty, this is Jeffrey Sachs now talking, uh, faculty and knowledge in the world. These institutions of higher learning have schools of public policy, social work, public health, business administration, and environmental science. Most importantly, they have 21 million young Americans enrolled to gain expertise in the skills needed for leadership and skills for the 21st century. By harnessing the vast brain power and experience in our colleges and universities, in civil society and business, America could indeed enter an era of successful rebuilding, one that creates a smart, fair, and sustainable economy that is truly second to none and serves as an inspiration for other parts of the world. This is from Jeffrey Sachs. He wrote it in November of 2016 right after the election, before the inauguration. Book, Building the New American Economy. And uh, Joy in Crescent City, California. Oh, there we go. Hey, Joy, you're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call, and thank you for um, letting me talk to ask my question to Congressman Pocan. I'm disabled, and I live on Social Security disability income, and my rent and utilities takes up about 75% of my income, and so I take side jobs to supplement that income. And 
I lost one of my side jobs. I had a side job in the Bay Area for two weeks, and the money that I was going to make from that side job was going to pay for my car insurance and my car registration, which is due at the end of this month. And now, because the Bay Area has shut down, I am not going to have that money to pay for my insurance or my car ins- or my registration. And I'm wondering, is there any assistance for somebody like me? Because I'm in a pickle here. Yeah, um, I, I think that's something, again, that we're recommending. I think any package that sends money out will include someone like yourself. The you know biggest thing is the devil's in the details as the Senate works this out right now. But clearly, um, we're talking about everyone getting this check so that you have ability to pay your bills still as we're moving forward. I think uh, the good news is, uh, from what I saw in the Washington Post, President right now, his proposal is two $1,000 checks and a loan package a small business. We'll see where that winds up with where we're working for things. Many of us would rather see something more like $2,000 a month going to people, but uh, we do want it to go to people like yourself. And uh, my hope is that through this package that will happen. Shana in Prairie Grove, Arkansas. You're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Good wellness to everyone. And <laughs> Congressman, I was wondering about is there anything in the works for the 2020 election, especially presidential, that we can all vote by mail? Yeah, Sheena. So there is, Senator Wyden started it, and on the House, I think we've got a few people who are leading it. But a proposal to do just that, to make sure that we can do mail ballots, it works well in Oregon. Tom, you know that. Uh, you live there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we yep. think that would be a good uh, method to do nationally. Uh, the last thing I think we'd want to do is postpone any November election. I don't think we'll ever need to, but we want to be prepared for it. And the best way to be prepared for it is to be prepared via mail ballots. So uh, something that uh, Progressive Caucus is going to be I believe, advocating after we have our call today with members, um, but many of us already have signed on to that as an idea. We think it's a, a very smart way to move forward. Yeah, I think the lead author who collaborated with Ron Wyden was uh, Portland, Oregon's Congressman uh, Earl Blumenauer, who's a member of your caucus. He's yeah. a member of the Progressive yep. Caucus, if I recall. And, yep. and I know Jamie okay. um, Raskin and a few others are on the bill. Raskin, too, so. yeah. Mary in Bainbridge Island, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, I wasn't sure if you're aware that I just uh, was at a meeting. I worked at a tribal medical clinic in Kitsap uh, County, and we were having a meeting with a virus testing. Not only do we need the actual test kits, which at the moment we have seven, which we're saving for the people who are actually working in our clinic, but also we also need the um, protective gear, which we don't have. And also, we just had LabCorp got broken into, so they don't have, they stole all of the equipment, and they stole the swabs. So we're really down. So just just to let you know, <laughs> things are really bad around here. Just wanted to let you know, though, that, that not only do we need the actual the kits, but also the protective gear. So just wanted to let you know. It's a little more complicated than just having the kids. So thanks for yep. all the work that both of you did. Thank, Thank you, Marion. I, I was having a little bit of a hard time understanding you, but I, I um, someone else mentioned, you know, that some people had stolen some materials. And, you know, this is a time um, that we need to all kind of work together on this, and anyone who tries to take advantage of this is really the – 
pretty much the lowest level of <laughs> uh, of humankind to take advantage of a crisis like this. Um, the good news is, I think, with the Defense Production Act, with all of us pushing issues today, we're pushing one. We've been working, actually, um, with Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, who works um, at the American Enterprise Institute, not a, a something normally the Progressive Caucus is working with. He came and talked to the Progressive Caucus last week. We are in daily contact with him because he's been a very good and honest player in this and helping us to know where there are some supply chain issues, and we're helping to get that message out to really beat the drums so that that's happening. I do feel right now that we are doing uh, this all rolling together in a good way, so I think the supplies are being um, addressed, the shortages, and we're doing our very best in getting this information out. But to anyone who would actually steal supplies and things at a time of crisis, really, um, I can't think of uh, anything more awful, and I, I hope that we'll be able to fill your supplies very soon. Yeah, and her point was that she works in a tribal clinic, and they only have seven test kits available, period, full stop. And yeah, I mean, you know, so I know there's a, a part of this is going to be trouble. We just signed a letter today, a 10-page letter, a bipartisan letter, Tom Cole and Deb Holland, on a number of tribal issues. I was on the phone today with the Ho-Chunk Nation, um, which uh, are in my district. So we are addressing that, but, uh, you know, Tom, I, I wish I could find the, the number of test kits we have in the VA uh, currently mm-hmm. across the country. It's a woeful uh, amount. Um, yeah. But all of this is ramping up. Uh, we yesterday, one of the things we did, I think it's important to share with people, we know there's a, a reagents is one of the issues. We're afraid to have charges to, to do the tests we need to. And um, we have a firm, two firms that we know can do that in district. We reached out to them proactively and found out, and we were able to connect them with the state of Wisconsin. And now they're getting test kits out of production. They just ramped up production um, with some FDA expedited approval on Friday. There's a lot happening right now, and I think it will be good news. Um, Again, we all wish it happened longer ago, but right now it is happening, and we're trying to keep the very best on top of it. Yeah, reagents are the chemicals that are used in the the test kits themselves. Um, There were some reports of shortages earlier. Uh, we just have 45 seconds here uh, before we uh, we have to have hard breaks when I'm on remote. Um, so uh, it, it's swab shortages, test kit shortages. Um, I, I, I heard on TV this morning, I believe it was when Governor Cuomo was speaking, that 95% of all the protective equipment used in the United States is manufactured in China. Is anybody talking about starting to open factories in America to make these things? I mean, doesn't this really show how insane this this uh, free trade thing that's been going on for the last, well, since since the Reagan administration is? And this is one of the areas that I think is of good hope is Democrats and Republicans raise supply chain issues on a regular basis now. So everyone's aware of it. And it's a joint effort. So I think long range will be addressing more of these issues. Short range, I think now we are with defense production, some other ways to try to get those things done. There you go. Congressman Mark Pocan, co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, taking your calls in our national town hall meeting right here on the Tom Hartman program. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be right back. Stick around. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls in just a moment. Welcome back. John in Langley, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Hi. This is um, people over profit time. And Obama, we have a fiat currency, which means our currency is based on the full faith and credit of people. 
And therefore, Obama looked into the constitutionality of minting trillion-dollar coins and destroying them. What this means is money should not be an issue in a time like this. The talk of debt, the talk of trying to pass bills for certain amounts is nonsense. The time is to simply put money aside. We can It's our money. Yeah. It's not bank money. I got money. it. I got it. John, and let me, to all of our callers, please don't use speakerphones. It's really hard to understand what you're saying. Or if you must use a speakerphone, when you talk to us, push the microphone right up to your mouth. Congressman, I don't know if you heard what he was talking about, the trillion-dollar yeah, coins. I, I think, monetary yeah, I think stuff. The, the part I agree with him on is that and I think I mentioned it and referenced it earlier, is I, right now I'm not so concerned about how we pay for some of these things as much as we get the money out and do what we need to do. And we will figure it out. We're the United States of America. We have that ability to. But to try to you know worry about that at this point uh, is not useful. I had several uh, journalists in the last few weeks, and one, unfortunately, I was not very polite to. I think I said, that's a dumb question, because I think what we're trying to focus on is just getting the aid out. We know we've got to do these things. We'll figure out how to pay for some of this a little bit later, but at a time of crisis, those issues are far less relevant. And the person's right. We need to put more money out right now and just get this done. So I agree with John in Washington. Yeah. Uh, and Japan's GDP, uh, debt to GDP ratio has been over 200% for 10, 15 years, and they're still around. Jeffrey in Tampa, Florida, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Congressman Tom, appreciate it. Jeffrey. My idea is rather than sending checks, or in addition to sending checks, the administration should call for a six-month moratorium on mortgages, you know, rents, loans, credit card payments, student loans, hospital bills, etc., not as a forgiveness, just a deferment with no added interest, so the lenders aren't missing out, but uh, you know, we're not having evictions, uh, et cetera, no punitive actions uh, for a while. Um, you know, the missed payments will get added back to the end of the loan. Uh, we revisit every six months uh, until we recovered. It's just a way to Jeffrey, we just spend money back into the economy. To the break, so go, go, go. Let's, ask, let's let Congressman answer. Thank you. Carson? Yeah, Jeffrey, I think um, uh, that's a good idea. Part of what we're looking at right now, I think, you know, some people are trying to do some really big picture ideas, like should we just abolish student loans like many people have wanted to do? I don't know if that's going to be part of the package, because we got to get this done quickly, but something that's uh, more along the lines of deferment um, makes a lot more sense, and I think you're going to see a number of those proposals uh, being put forward, and hopefully put forward in some of the packages. Hmm. Okay. I'm just getting used to here, Congressman, uh, Instead of having my clock uh, at the studio where I can actually see the automation equipment and I can see where the brakes are and when, when they're going to hit, uh, I had to do it off uh, a little digital clock on my, on my laptop. And no worries. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for understanding. Stick around. Mark in Sioux City, Wisconsin, or Sauk City, Wisconsin. You're on the air with your congressman, Congressman Pocan. Yes, uh, glad to talk to you, Mark. Has the government finally approved the, the use of the, the WHO tests? Um, is that something that uh, Congress can actually you know, twist President Trump's arm on actually doing? Because this, we're going to be using foreign tests anyway. If we're you know, going to go Roche, you know, for Swiss, you know, the Swiss manufacturer, what's wrong with the German manufacturer? That apparently has already, from what I've heard, has already you know been cranking out the WHO tests for they, Corona. They were selling them to sixty states in early February, Congressman. Yeah, 
I, I, I don't have that answer offhand, Mark, other than, a, you know, there is a big question why we didn't do that six weeks ago. Um, the best answer, they said there's some false positives. I don't accept that as, as a good answer. Right now, though, the test kits that we have and the labs are being set up for the, our tests. So my guess is the focus will continue because the tests are now uh, produced. The lab capacity is up. We just have to make sure we have the supplies to run the tests, and you might run into some of those issues if you have labs doing multiple tests. So I don't have a clear answer other than um, I do think some of those issues, while definitely should have been resolved previously, um, I think we are being able to address with the current tests we have right now. But I'll, I'll try to get back to you on that. I don't know offhand. John, in Santa Fe, is it Texas or New Mexico, John? I know, New Mexico. Big difference on that okay. one. Okay. Um, Great. Hi, how are you, gentlemen? Um, my, my question is about how the local uh, businesses here, restaurants and all those, are virtually closing down because we have these restrictions guided by the CDC, six foot and smaller tables and whatnot. Meanwhile, we have the airline industry just piling people into these airtight cylinders and going across the country and possibly spreading this thing even worse. I'm wondering if Congress is considering this or if it would take an executive uh, executive decision or how that goes. Huh. Yeah, I, I, I know that. I wonder if you could um, pass a law saying that all center seats have to be empty. Yeah, or something like that. I, I don't think they're filling a lot of planes right now, from what we understand, other than the immediate surge we had over the weekend as borders were being closed down, and then we saw the, the problems because they didn't correspond in the airports to process people coming back from overseas. Um, but from what we understand is that's part of the problem is no one is flying, and, and honestly, no one sane should be flying unless they have to. Unfortunately, we're still hearing about too many young people who think they're invincible taking vacations, spring break in Florida, had a bunch of people at the beach. This is going to prolong not just this crisis, but it's going to cause us to have more economic problems and more problems for our seniors where they're being hit the hardest and people with other health conditions. This is the time that everyone has to quit being selfish. And unfortunately, I can't tell you how many people uh, we're still running into this problem that think they can do this because they're in a, a category where they may be asymptomatic or it'll just be symptoms like a cold. That's not the point. They're a carrier. And as long as they're a carrier and this continues, they will continue to hurt our economy and they will continue to put their parents and grandparents at the greatest risk. So um, that's one that, Tom, I, I just... I, I, I don't know how else to express other than I can't tell you how many times I've got people uh, we're hearing this from, and uh, I don't know how to stop it other than we need to say it over and over. It's time to be uh, not selfish. Well, and there's a new report uh, out of China. It was just published yesterday um, looking at thousands of children under the age of 15. And what they found was that even babies were getting this and getting very, very sick. And uh, while it wasn't to 17 to 20 percent who needed respirators and hospitalization, it was as high as 6 percent among children. Yeah. So there were no deaths, but there was a lot of severe lung injury that will be lifelong. And, uh, and that's, that's kids. That's the, the, the most yeah. invincible, right? So they're still getting sick. And then you, you see these 20 and 30 and 40-year-olds. The other thing that flipped me out, we, we just have 40 seconds here. Um, the other thing that flipped me out is this new survey that just it was published by uh, YouGov uh, this morning uh, that uh, only about 30% of Fox News viewers think that this is a problem. I'm still seeing it in social media traffic to some degree. Um, hopefully, uh, now they're listening to the president, the people who get all their information from him. He uh, seems to, last several days, realize what many of us have realized for a couple months. Um, 
hopefully that number will change, but I am still absolutely dumbfounded by the number of people who are high school, college um, age yeah. who are still traveling. The spring break thing is is a phenomenon. We've got to stop. And um, yep. everyone needs I screwed to help up my, in, in my, talking my, to their loved ones. I screwed up my time uh, thing. We have another minute and a half here. Susan in Snellville, oh. Georgia. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman. How are you doing? Hi, Susan. Good. Thank you. I have a situation, and I have a possible idea. My sister-in-law, we are an immigrant family. My sister-in-law has signs. The woman that she cleans house for in Buckhead, Atlanta, tested positive for coronavirus because she just got back with her husband from Japan. However, she is not getting the right information. She doesn't understand. She's scared. She has no health care. She lives in a house with five people that are still coming and going, going to work. Susan, we're running out of time here. What's your question? My sister-in-law is walking around with coughing all over the house, so they don't understand. Can we get the word out better? Can we mail out information? Can we start having stores post? Okay, let's let the congressman answer the question. He just has 20 seconds. Yeah, I mean, anyone who shows any uh, symptoms should call the health provider to get tested. And I think, you know, we just have to do that person to person at this point. I don't know if we can do a national mailing while we're trying to mail out checks, right? We've got a lot of things to do, but we need to person to person be able to get this information out. And you should not go to work if you are sick, period. I heard of one employer finally yesterday said that they were having people coughing at work. We all have to stand to this together. And if someone is sick at work, we have to stand up and say they, they shouldn't be going to work. Um, that's the recommendations, and uh, she should absolutely call a health care provider to get tested. Congressman Pocan, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for uh, putting up with my uh, my time dislocations. My no time worries. Dislocations. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Thank Tom. you so much for Take being here. Yeah, always good talking. Thank you. You know, surviving in an era, and prospering perhaps even, you know, or doing well anyway, in an era of pandemic. You're listening to Tom Hartman. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.